This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long. So before we get started here, I have a very quick announcement. If you've been listening to this show for any amount of time, I'm sure you've heard my dear friend Matt Langston come onto the show every now and then. He is a musician. He's the front man of the Jelly Rocks and 117. He provides all the music for this show. So he has his own podcast. It's called 110 Life. And if you have any interest in the life of a musician, the life of a craftsman, and the day-in, day-out experience and struggle of the highs and lows of that life, I highly recommend you check out his podcast, 110D Life. He's constantly going into the experience of being an artist. He talks to other creators. He does technical breakdowns of his songs, which are really, really cool. He talks to other producers, musicians, authors, and he occasionally dabbles in faith and religion stuff as well. It's just a really, really great show. It's one of my favorites, and if you like this one, please go subscribe to his show, I promise you, you won't regret it. And this week, I am talking to pastor and author Steve Dougherty. We talk about his journey out of fundamentalist religion. We talk about how to experience ambiguity within the faith. We talk about living on the spectrum between agnosticism and faith, and how he is now living a religion of presence and honesty. His book, Experiments in Honesty, is excellent. I highly recommend it to everyone. And he has a lot of really fantastic insight for those of us who are struggling to work through faith and reconciling ancient faith with modern life, modern justice, modern revelations about the world. So I found this conversation really helpful and really inspiring, and I hope you do too. And with that, I am delighted to give you my conversation with Steve Dougherty. So I'm here with Steve Dougherty. Thank you, Steve, for joining me. Thanks for having me. So I'm in the middle of your book, Experiments in Honesty. It's a fantastic book. You reached out to me on Twitter to ask me to uh, bring you onto the show to discuss your book. I'm always a bit nervous when people do that because I'm I'm always like, uh, there's a good chance that their book is shitty. But your book, <laughs> <laughs> but your book is actually pretty good. Okay. I've I, I've uh, I've been enjoying it. But so other than the author of Experiments in Honesty. Uh, which we'll get to here in a minute. Just tell us some about yourself. You're a pastor. Tell us about uh, where you pastor and some of your story, some of your journey. Yeah, sure. I um, I'll, I'll do my best. First, thanks for uh, obliging me on a on an awkward Twitter request. I, I my agent says I should do a better job of putting myself out there, and so. Well, and and by the way, for possible not shitty authors who want to be interviewed, please reach out to me on Twitter. I'm constantly looking for people, interesting people to interview. So definitely reach out to me on Twitter or wherever. Stop me on the street and I might interview you. Anyway, go on. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm hopeful I'll be a degree or two above shitty. I'm a a pastor in the Research Triangle just outside of Raleigh, North Carolina. Yeah, just an an interesting place to do the kind of thing that I do. I'm on a team of great people who I do it with. Um, I'm a teaching pastor, and so I do a lot of talking, and I do a lot of counseling uh, of people, and uh, I do a lot of creating and writing, trying to make 
old things seem new uh, is one way that I put it. And uh, yeah, that, that, that captures a lot of the what and the where. Awesome. Uh, what denomination are you, just out of curiosity? Totally non-denominational. Um, okay. There's no mothership. We can, we can play with everybody. Okay, so you're not part of the Borg. So in your book, Experiments in Honesty, I always want to call it Adventures in Honesty, like Adventures in Odyssey. And I think mm. that was like a missed opportunity for you, to like that pun, that mm-hmm. that play on Adventures in Odyssey. But, you know, it's it's fine. But That'll be the sequel. You start the book with a retelling of Peter's first encounter with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you could retell that story and what insights you glean from that story, because that's how you set up the book and kind of the theme of honesty and openness and fearlessness that you're exploring. Yeah. Uh, so the opening chapter, I do a telling maybe filling in some details of what it must have been like for Peter, who at that point was he still went by Simon. He's a, a an exhausted swing shift fisherman fishing an overfished Sea of Galilee. The the Empire already fishes the the heck out of it, and it says he's fishing all night with with his uh, with his crew, his buddies, and they don't catch anything. And uh, early in the morning, they're cleaning their nets, and and uh, Jesus is strolling down the beach with uh, you know his his young entourage. And uh, I just try to set up that exchange of how how strange it's it's really the way that Matthew tells it. There's not a whole lot of detail given. Just here's this this rabbi, ostensibly a rabbi, they don't really exchange very many words, asks to go out a little bit and uh, and speak to the people from the water, one would guess for amplification. And apparently Peter, or you know, Simon at that point, and the others are struck that, hey, I've heard some of this stuff before, but somehow this is this means something else. Then there's the, the big catch of fish, and uh, you know, the boats are, are, are shin deep in, in fish after having been out all night. And so uh, the reason I set that story up is because what Peter does in response to this is he falls down on his face and says, get away from me, Lord, I'm a sinner. And I think, as I think I refer to it in the book, is uh, it's it's got to be an answer to prayer. I got to believe that Peter prayed about that. Mm. Hey, hey, I'd really like to catch fish. Then it happens. And he says, get away from me. You don't know how bad I am. Like, this must be a mistake. If you knew who you were dealing with, you wouldn't have done something good. So I've never, and I mean, I haven't heard that many, but I've never heard anything other than prescription. What Simon Peter does in that moment is what we should all do when we come into the, uh, the presence of the almighty son of God and all that stuff. But Jesus tells him to stand up and cut it out. And so throughout the Gospels, Peter gets everything wrong. Mm. He, I mean, almost every single thing wrong. And we know that, you know, he wants to shoo away children. He wants to shoo away hungry people. He wants to, he's involved in calling down weather on the heads of others. He swings a sword at somebody's head for arresting Jesus and only gets his ear. The only thing Peter ever gets right in the New Testament is, according to Jesus, when he says, you're the son of God, the son of God. And then Peter, or uh, Jesus tells Peter, yeah, but you didn't come up with that. God had to tell you that. So the only thing he gets right, he cheated. So (laughs) in, in all of those examples, I see, and others before me have, Peter is sort of a stand-in for what fools we are when our convictions, our religious convictions, our, our moral compass and all that, when we attach Jesus's name to that, it's always wrong. And, and I think comedically so. I think Peter is comic relief in, in the Gospels. But the first thing he does 
is falls down in abject fear. And that we say, that's right. And I just call BS on that. I think that's wrong too. Or, or why else does Jesus tell him, don't be afraid? You can follow me. I'm going to build a church on you and that, that whole bit. So I start there because I think that what we're supposed to be evaluating in the, in the Gospels is that systems rooted in fear and intimidation and control are pretty widespread and they're as old as people. Um, but this was supposed to be different. And Peter gets to be a stand-in for that foolish dimension of us. Right. That was an interesting insight that you had with Peter in that story. And it's something that I had noticed, too, is that just about every single commentary I've ever read on that story says that Peter was correct to fall down in terror before him. But then Jesus says, don't fear. And that's what always happens in the scriptures when someone falls down in terror before an angel or before the presence of Christ as they're told don't don't fear fear not and, and so basically you're setting up kind of this different modality you're setting up this opportunity or this invitation into more of a fearless religion into a religion that allows for much greater honesty and you have some really fantastic insights about how we are expected to love God fully and see God as this loving intimate personal, benevolent figure who we should also fear deeply. And then you bring up the point, well, you know, people always say, oh, but fear means awe. And you say, well, basically, well, then just use the word awe. <laughs> Why use the word fear? And it sets up kind of this, this gaslighting, psychopathic, unhealthy relationship with this yeah. deity where he's supposed to be loving, benevolent, sing his praises for being all loving, but we're supposed to fear him and tremble before him. Right. Yeah. And, and fear every time, and I hate to be so absolute, but fear every time engenders self-interest. And so anytime I'm afraid, I'm thinking about my own welfare. And that is counterintuitive to a message that Jesus said is summarized by love of other, that the, the focus, not entirely, it's impossible, but the, the emphasizing the needs of another. Well, if I'm afraid, I'm thinking about how do I get out of this? And so it's really convenient that God can be really, really uh, angry and ter terrifying and, and uh awful, because then what I got to do is I got to figure out, well, who's the worst sinner I can get that stuff aimed at, you know, if I can get out of the crosshairs of all that. Well, that's just, that's just religion. It becomes kind of like the Hunger Games. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're setting up this invitation into fearless religion, which I, and I get the impression that that's why the book is called Experiments in Honesty. It's like the book is this series of really profound meditations on what happens when we're allowed to be honest within our faith. And this book is your example of that, of what happens when you have been released to be honest. And, and so, you know, you have these really interesting discourses on selfishness versus selflessness and being a tick versus, <laughs> I, I can't remember the terminology that you used, but could you talk some about that? The impression I get is that once the terror of being wrong is lifted from you in faith, in our experience of faith, once the terror of being wrong is lifted from us, then that means that we can suddenly do some really radical self-investigation. What in the 12 steps we call a fearless moral inventory. Yes. 
I feel like part of what your book was was making a fearless moral inventory. So could you talk some about being a tick? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I can I can talk at length about being a tick. I'm not sure if I can say it as eloquently as you just did, Stephen, but I think um, what you're saying is spot on. So I just had about two hours ago a conversation with somebody I've known for 12 years, and she was expressing that she's not so much uncomfortable with my theology as she's getting uncomfortable with the dozens and dozens of conversations she's having when I'm not in the room about my theology. Ah, yeah, I'm the recipient of that as well. I have nothing but pleasant conversations, and then everyone around me has these apparently really harrowing, unpleasant conversations about me. Yeah, yeah, and she she was super great about it. And I always prefer you come talk to me than 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 not. And so but one of the things she said is, I'm afraid that what you're teaching is and then she kind of spelled out some of the things that she was afraid of that she she used a couple different words, you know, I'm uncomfortable, etc, etc. So I said, well, tell me what's at stake for you. And that was the longest pause we had in the whole conversation as she kind of looked up at 45 degrees. And she said, I'm, I'm afraid that I'll fall into a teaching that would be out of God's will. Mm. And I said, so be more specific about that, because being unafraid, compassionate lovers of other is is God's will. And I haven't heard that criticism. I've just heard that I'm not teaching the right thing about eschatology or blah, 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 blah. So I was watching her in response to the actual question you asked me, Stephen. I was watching her realize what's at stake is I'm afraid of cosmic eternal paddling if I come to the wrong conclusion. That's psychopathy. That we're, we're watching a psychopath. Exactly. And I said, here's the good news. There's different ways of saying the good news. This is maybe lowercase g, good news. We're all wrong. Yeah. And so what we can be right about is love. And here's the thing. Assuming that Christ was actually raised from the dead, assuming the incredible power of the atonement, why would the atonement stop right at our behavior? Why would it not also cover our fallen minds? And that is ultimately putting a cap on the atonement. And this is something that, you know, when I was in evangelical circles, I just never understood mm-hmm. where if if Christ came and died and rose again for our fallenness. He can cover my sinful inclinations and behaviors, but for some reason he can't cover my fallen mind that despite (laughs) the best efforts, despite my very best efforts to grasp all the information that's been given to me, doing the best I can with what I've been given and might still be wrong, suddenly he can't handle that. I don't think it makes sense to a lot of people, but we're too afraid to question it because questioning it rattles the whole thing. But yeah, essentially what you're saying is what what I'm I'm saying is this amazing grace that we keep singing about only starts to apply when, as a sinner who can't do anything right, I'm supposed to have my theology all sorted out so that I can receive grace I couldn't earn. That's like telling a four-year-old that you are incapable of making adult decisions, and so I need you to read this book about making better decisions. You're setting them up for failure, and it's just, it's a logic fail. So exactly. as far as, you know, the, 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 the tick analogy that I use, and I talk about mosquitoes and ticks and parasites and the reason that we find them so, you know, pretty ubiquitously, we find those things loathsome is they're takers. And even what they do for us, you know, in terms of like, you can't feel a tick bite you. And but that's not a gift to us. That's just a matter a matter of its own survival. So it, it, by not feeling it bite you, you don't swat it off. And so there's all kinds of ways that we live with our self interest dialed up really, really high. And we already know 
regardless of what your, your, your faith paradigm is, we already know that self-interested takers are the bad guys. And, and it's just a matter of scale. If you're trying to get somebody to work out their standing with the divine now and forever and all that, and you're promoting a system of fear, you are promoting a system that's subtly self-interested. That's a tick theology. That's a tick theology. And so really what we're saying is, the one who said it all boils down to love of other is also telling you, if you don't have this stuff worked out the right way, then you're going to be roasted eternally in a subterranean fire cave. I don't have any bandwidth to, to be empathetic and compassionate to other people because I am afraid all the time. Am I okay? Am I okay? So it's really the, the, a traditional Christian marriage kind of works in, an, in a, to that spirit of antichrist of get yourself all worked out. I think a lot of people can even agree with what I just said or maybe have a better, more sophisticated vocabulary for it, but we're too afraid to admit that because if it's wrong, then what if it turns out we do have a God who does function like a psychopath that wants to be thought of the correct way or will hurt your body forever? Yeah. You know, I'm as I'm listening to you talk, I'm just reminded of something that has come up on this show multiple times, is that a people who are supposed to be known for their love, who are supposed to be known for their radical compassion for the whole world, is so often known for this brittleness. And I experienced this, just feeling like my faith, my life, my soul, my theology are so brittle. It's almost like it's a cabinet full of glass china. And I have to protect it so much. And that means that I can't let anyone into my house who might break it. I can't let anyone in my house who disagrees too much or whose theology is too out there. And, you know, definitely not the atheists. Like, absolutely no one who can cause my china cabinet of faith to, <laughs> to shatter. You know what I mean? And, yes. and the end result is a very protective fearful life. The end result is a disconnected life. And my life and theology are nuts now. And if you have any, you know, if you've been listening to the podcast, you probably know that. It's kind of crazy. It's really out there. I make a lot of people uncomfortable. But I... Are you being honest? Yes, but I have never been happier. Yeah, honesty does that, doesn't it? Yeah, it does that. <laughs> I have never been happier. And I'm able to talk to people and have friendships with people who previously would have absolutely terrified me. I've been interviewing a lot of Satanists from the Satanic Temple lately. You know, a lot of people who just otherwise would have terrified me. But now that my theology is not fragile, now that my faith isn't fragile, it's kind of been destroyed and I'm living in the aftermath of it. And I've never felt more free. Mm -hmm. You're helping me understand even in this moment, like that we've, you and I have both heard our whole lives about people uh, when they say you're supposed to be bold in the faith and how that boldness can be easily faked. Well, so like protecting your China cabinet of faith, I think that's how you put it. Yeah. Great band name, by the way, but it, it's <laughs> that defensive, please don't go near it. Don't jump up and down on the floor too hard. Protective self-interest faith. What you might do with that is go all the way out to the street and make sure no one comes near the house and call that. I'm just being bold in faith. I'm, pr I'm protecting the Bible from the very first verse and all that versus say, do, ask whatever you need to do. I know I'm, I'm good with where I'm at. All the way up to and including, you can't even make me violent. 
Yeah. And and I I don't want to talk so idealistically that it no longer has any roots in reality, but I think the Jesus being crucified is for me now less about being a stand-in for a goat or or a or a lamb and saying you can't make me you can't make me act like the worst of humanity. And 3 days later as the story goes, God vindicates the death of Jesus, the voluntary death of Jesus at the hands of people. He told Peter, "Yeah, I could wipe him out if I wanted to, but put your sword away. That's it's a, that's a different kingdom." Hmm. Vind- vindicating on that on Sunday like we're following one who is so bold in his faith that he doesn't have to be oppressive or defensive, you know, is kind of talking like, yes, I know where I'm at. That's way more attractive to me than conquest. Yeah, he's the ultimate truth teller. Yeah, because he, yeah, it was so far, uh, so much a truth teller that was able to say, yeah, I am the truth. If you look at my life, it's like, it's really square. It's really going to be attractive to you. It's not propositional. Yeah, you know, one of the things about the Christ story that I still hold on to, and you know, I'm at a point in my life now where I think most Christians would look at me and say that I'm not a Christian. I disagree. I think I am still a Christian. I think I'm still part of the Christian tradition. But, you know, like a, a heavily mutated, like went into Chernobyl and came out with like multiple limbs and like a scary alien Christian. But I still feel like I'm a Christian and that I'm still part of the Christian tradition tradition. I'm okay with the term post-Christian if that makes people more comfortable, but the the point being that I'm I'm still in kind of the evolutionary stream of Christian thought and Christian tradition. And one of the things that I absolutely love about the Christ story is it being a metaphor, like you said, for truth-telling and being so okay with truth-telling that they choose defeat over conquest and that being okay. And more than that, what I love about the Christ story is it becomes a metaphor or an allegory or like an archetype of the self-death, the self, the ego death, the self-annihilation, and then the rebirth that comes out of that. Mm-hmm. You know, regardless of whether we believe, whether we are theistic or non-theistic, no matter what we believe, every human being is called into that cycle of ego mm-hmm. death and resurrection. Yeah. And for whatever reason, for me, the Christ story represents that cycle the best. Yeah, I, I think that's beautiful. And I, w- I would also say, regardless of, I, the, I don't mean this as cheaply as it sounds, but regardless of the labels that you would assign to yourself or, or disavow, your integrity, and I, I mean that word uh, technically, you know, integer, your honesty right now with yourself and the subsequent peace that you, that you have with that. I think that that's really attractive, and I, I think everyone thinks that it is. And maybe that's what makes it so uncomfortable is it's almost like it's uh, it's envy. Like I wish I could be honest and then know that that honesty wasn't going to cost me. I think that's ubiquitously attractive to be one thing. I, if you want to be mm. theological about it, God is one, 
the that ancient uh, that you know the Shema that that God is one that Hebrews have been saying multiple times a day for millennia. That doesn't mean I don't think that there's one God. It's that God is one. Like God's not getting better at being God. God isn't moody. God has integer integrity, and we're mm. made in the image of this. It's the so, singularity. It's the yeah, yeah. yes. Now, we all have different contradictory ideas about things, and we can be messy. I, you know, I, I understand that. But your experience right now of being at peace with what you actually are and aren't, and you can move in and out of those spaces, if people allow themselves to be honest with that, that's, that's really attractive. Yeah, and I think, it, I think, like you said, that envy frightens a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. um, but this, this kind of brings me to another question that I have, because throughout your book, and I'm still in the middle of it, and maybe you get to this at a later point. Do you want in, me to just read it to you real quick? Is that, would that be helpful? <laughs> we can turn this into an audiobook. Yeah, let's just do it. I'll clear my throat and let's get into it. <laughs> For the next four hours, it'll, it'll just, be, anyway. <laughs> but the thing that I found myself asking throughout your book is I am down with everything you're saying about honesty and fearlessness and you know for some people i have seen this journey lead to a healthier religion and i think there is such a thing as healthy and unhealthy religion i've seen it lead people to a healthier religion but they stay within theistic religion or they stay within an understanding of there being a supernatural realm and and so on and so forth what happens when the honesty that you are promoting leads people out of the faith altogether. And how do you as a pastor, how do you respond to that? What do you do when that happens? What do I do when people being honest with themselves leads them away from the faith? Yes. <laughs> so my, the snarky answer to that would be, I would say you're welcome. Because if, you <laughs> if, if you had to deceive yourself to stay in a thing, then I, I've done you a favor. Absolutely. I think that if you're being honest, which I mean, that's a different word than dogmatic. That's a different idea than the convictions that you hold. I think that if the truth sets us free, then part of what it sets us free from is all the things that we thought we were holding on to by not telling the truth, which is a lot of Christianity, a lot of churching, a lot of all of that stuff. And so this is, I think you're touching on something that's super important for a lot of us. And I've got a, a chapter, I don't know how far along you are, but the, the one of the chapter titles is Too Afraid of God to Not Be Afraid of God. Um, yes, yes. I think that what you're touching on is like, it feels like I'm not just changing my mind, but leaving a thing. And I think I read somewhere in the Bible that if I leave, I'm worse off than I was before and the door shuts behind me forever and all that. If you have to hold on to a thing that you don't believe in order to stay in, that can't be from ultimate truth. Yeah. And it's deeply unhealthy. Deeply unhealthy. And that word unhealthy is so important. You know, sound doctrine in, in the Greek word for sound is also translated throughout the New Testament as healthy. If somebody has a mm. sound body, they have a healthy body. So we have to be asking good psychological and sociological questions about our doctrine. Is it healthy? And if we say, well, it might not be healthy, but it's right. I think that's a contradiction in terms that the, yes. one, the life himself or life herself, depending on how you want to put it, is for us thriving. We might have to take steps backward in order to thrive, that'll feel like, you know what I mean by that. If you walk with a limp, you might have to re-break your femur and limp harder for a while in order to straighten that out. <laughs> if we serve a cosmic tick, a broken ego that needs to be worshipped, that needs to be 
loved and adored and, and obeyed at the exclusion of all else, heaven's going to be hell. <laughs> yes. Uh, but if we, I think what we're seeing is uh, one of the uh, early church parents referred to God as the eternal water wheel, hmm. uh, you know, constantly outpouring God is love and God hmm. is and all that good, beautiful stuff. Yeah. Then I think everything that we're supposed to be doing is for our health in every way. So I think it's really good doctrine to look and say that the thing that this church does or this denomination does or this pastor or whatever does has biblical support, but it's unhealthy. Well, then change it. Yeah. I'm saying that flippantly, but you know what I mean? Like change it. It's not, it's unhealthy. As you're talking, there's just so much that's coming to mind. One of which being, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, social psychologist, Jonathan Haidt. He's helped me understand a lot about myself and the world and my experiences within the church. He's not a Christian, but I would say that he's a, he's a friendly atheist to Mm -hmm. religion. And one of the things that he says is that we are not in control of our intuitions and that intuition is really what's controlling, (laughs) you know, the ship. And he describes reason as the rider of an elephant. And the elephant is actually the one that is deciding where it wants to go. And so reason can try to pull the elephant this way and that way. But ultimately, it's an elephant. It's way bigger than the rider. It will do what it wants to do. And so the rider becomes a post hoc explainer for the actions of the elephant, right? And what happens many times in life is there's this dissonance between the rider and the elephant, where the elephant knows what it knows. You know, I I think a big elephant for a lot of people, and it was for me, the elephant knows that homosexuality is not sinful, and that gay relationships are healthy and as good and beautiful and wonderful and moral as straight relationships. A lot of people know that. Their elephants know that. They be- mm-hmm. Their elephants believe that. But their writers are caught in old evangelical theology or Catholic theology or Protestant theology or whatever that says that homosexuality is fundamentally sinful and broken. Mm. And this causes a gigantic dissonance, and and it caused that dissonance for me. And I remember several years ago the enormous weight that lifted off of me when I finally accepted that maybe my elephant is right. I can have a loving partnership with a man, and maybe that's okay. And I was in this terrible dissonance for so many years of being like, this is killing me. My heart tells me that my theological beliefs are wrong, but my beliefs are not contrary to reason. They are not self-contradictory within my tradition. Therefore, I'm just going to keep believing them. And then it finally almost killed me. Wow. And so that's kind of the dynamic that I'm hearing you talk about is the choice to be honest about your elephant. And none of this is to say that we can't influence our elephant. None of this is to say that we can't have dialogue with our elephant. We can. Jonathan Haidt says that the best way to influence the elephant is through kind, open conversation with people who disagree with you. And that's the best way to change the elephant is through relationship. None of this is to say that we can't change the elephant. But what I see happening in a lot of American Christianity today is just denying the elephant is there altogether. 
Well, you're also making me, what a beautiful metaphor. Like, I can't wait next time somebody says something to me to say to them, you know your elephant doesn't believe that. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I'm also thinking, using that metaphor, of how much modern Western Christian, well, maybe not even modern, but Christianity has incentivized people to punish their elephant. Yes. Until it turns on them. Yes. And how many times have we seen people who do what I do for a living who say, you know, like uh, Carl Jung said, if you want to know something about yourself, pay attention to the people that bother you. And, I, <laughs> and how many people have railed against, you know, the, the, the classic their sins are worse than my sins. Homosexuality has obviously been a big one railing against that because I'm thinking I hate to name him, but uh, Haggard, what you know, mm -hmm. how he. Ted had such a reputation for being so against the uh, homosexual men and to find out what was going on in his personal life. He punished his own elephant until we all found out that it had actually kind of turned on him. And because, it, gosh, it has to be known. And exactly. Richard Rohr famously said that it's not our shadow self that is the problem. It's it's the unacknowledged shadow self, this whole yes. other part of us that we will not face. And why? Well, I tend to think a big reason is because we're if if we admit that unjudgmentally, then we're telling God, hey, I'm going to judge all this differently than you. And so, mm. here, you know, here comes wrath. Mm. You know, listening to your story, listening to you talk, I get the impression as you talk and uh, reading your book that you weren't always this progressive. <laughs> you picked that up, huh? Yes, I picked that up. And and again, maybe you talk about this later in the book. I'm curious about what your theology used to be like mm -hmm. and what changed it. Um, I do talk about that later in the book. Okay. Um, and, and I've, I've had, uh, and I'm, I'm happy to, to cover some of it here, but my father was a cop for 25 years. Yes. And, and I, I talk a little bit in the book about that. So we all learn what strength and power mean right or wrong from those who play a father figure and mother figures too but just kind of shooting right down the center it's the it's the it's men in our life that teach us what we're supposed to think about power and mine was you know a state patrolman in ohio so mm. i mean he he carried a gun and was able to wreck your life if he wanted to if he you know he, he had that discretion and uh, just the stories he would tell he tried to do good but he was a he was a strong man with big biceps and had the state behind him so that's where i learned what influence and power and rightness looked like it was not just uh, an argument that you know how to have but who do you represent what's the entity that you are standing in for so his was the government I had to outdo him, and so I went kingdom of God. I was mindful way after the fact that what pe appealed to me of being a pastor was the power that or you could see my dad in your rearview mirror and get nervous. I could make you nervous by the things that I said and the, and the, the Bible quotes that I chose. Mm. And I, I think part of me really felt like my worth was based on my ability to get you nervous about the life you weren't taking seriously. And it's gross to say that a little bit, but uh, it was childish, mm. which gives me all kinds of, you know, I, I could have all kinds of conversations about how we send young people out on behalf of the faith to knock doors or to evangelize and all that. And they don't have this stuff worked out in their head, man. It's just, it's, uh, 
it really perpetuates some some juvenile stuff. But I uh, was really rigid and really got an open arms invitation in the faith, but was very quickly put into positions of power because I like to be in front of people and talk and tell stories and all that. And uh, was very taken with the idea of being an influencer for the faith. Before I could find my ass with both hands, I I was telling other people how to live, you know, early, mid-20s and and, and and some guys and gals that you know they got it all figured out by then. I was I was a decade away from any of that. So I had some really great people explain to me that I was right, you know, technically, and still so so wrong. Mm. And I was wrong about things too. But like I don't think people who are Pharisees recognize that they're Pharisees. Right? As simplistic Absolutely. as the phrase that is, the difference between being right and being self righteous and all that, you know, it's so hard to see when you're in it. So yes. I really was a herald of go burn your CDs and this is the one way you're allowed to be in the world that I had not visited. I'd only ever lived in, you know, one one region of one country. Um, this is what God thinks and all that stuff. And looking back on it, I can see that it was part of my adolescence, which makes it really hard to be anything less than condescending to others who are 40, 50, 60 years old. And they had that same theology now. They had that same technique. Mm. Of they're still trying to control, you know, I, I describe it all the time, how many pastors talk about what life is supposed to look like and they have no access to people who live differently or what heaven is going to be like and they've never been there. Imagine taking a, a tour of some foreign country by somebody that's never been there before. And yet we people do it every Sunday. Yes. That, that this is the way because look how confident he is up there. And so I was I was a pretty rigid guy early on. And then I realized humanity is just, you know, it's not black or white, man. It's these, all these flesh tones, all this nuance. And, um, and you, you know, what would turn out to be things like, you know, people have elephants. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's complicated, man. So being able to embrace ambiguity and uncertainty within the faith is, I mean, I'm still learning how to do that because I still have that part of me that's addicted to power because mm. uh, I'm so afraid. You talk about being raised by a cop and that being your vision of power. I was raised by two pastors and that was my vision of power. Oh, wow. So I am a preacher's kid squared and it has fucked me up in all the ways you expect it to. <laughs> and <laughs> So I'm worried about my kids because their grandfather is a cop or their dad is a pastor. Like it's going to like it could be a nightmare or it could go really well, but it could. It could be bad. Well, you know, you can get them acquainted with me, who's a queer satanic Episcopalian, and I'll be happy to. Uh... <laughs> I'll just, we'll just, I'll have them call you Uncle Stephen. They won't use this other adjective. <laughs> so you talk about ambiguity. What does ambiguity within the faith? And this is something that that I'm always interested in because I think that let me see if I let me see how I can articulate this. This is something that I have been struggling with. This is something that I've been trying to put my finger on because I think that after two decades of the new atheists, people are just done. People are mm. just fed up with the new atheists, this total rejection of the faith saying that in order to doubt, in order to be skeptical, in order to be scientific, you have to reject religion altogether. And I think a lot of people are done. Of course, 
my view is very subjective. I am in, uh, you know, a little online pocket of millennials who are figuring this stuff out, and it might not be indicative of a wider movement. But I do think that in a lot of ways, people are done with this hard line. If you're going to doubt, if you're going to be skeptical, if you're going to be scientifically minded, you have to to leave religion altogether. And I think people are just done with that. On the other hand, I think people are done with fundamentalism. And so the end result, religious fundamentalism, that is. And so the end result is that there are a lot of people who are basically saying, you know what? I don't believe in my faith the way I used to. I don't have a faith the way I used to. I've rejected a lot of my traditions. I've rejected a lot of the foundational things that people have said make me a Christian. Mm-hmm. And yet here I am still a Christian trying to reconcile an ancient faith with modern science, trying to reconcile this ancient faith, which in many ways is irrational and self-contradictory, but I still somehow can't get away from it. And so we're all in this place. A lot of us are in this place of having to negotiate what part of our faith stays and what part of it goes, what yeah. part of our Christian tradition is healthy and what part of it isn't. And how do we deal with this? And we'll all end up in different ways, you know, it, in, in different places where I end up will be different from a lot of other people and so on. But I'm curious about how you are working out ambiguity. Do you ever have days where you just wake up and you're like, you know what, I'm an agnostic today, but I'm going to live my faith anyway. I'm going to live these rites, these traditions, these stories, these symbols anyway, and I don't actually know if it's true. And then do you have other days where it like totally makes sense to you and you believe? Like, do you move across that spectrum? Yes. My answer to all that is just yes. <laughs> uh, I do it. So, you know, the, the, I, I take some of my cues here from David Dark. Guest of Sacred Tension. He's one of my favorite people. Yeah. So the idea of having days where I feel religious and days where I don't, that's tricky because some days I wake up and think capitalism is going to kill us all. But then I go to the store that night and then realize, you know, I'm, that's the water I'm swimming in. And I, I'm not sure I'd recognize any other way of being. And that's part of my religious upbringing. Meaning what grabs your attention is your religion. Your underlying, your underlying systems, your, oh, I forget exactly how he put it, but the binding belief systems, that's your religion. The story you tell yourself or tell others about yourself, you know, re-ligare, yes. the etymology of that word is to again bind. Yes. Religature, religion. Uh, we do that. And so I even uh, try to help people understand that what you renounce, and there's a lot of renunciation happening, obviously, in our culture and has been for a while. What you're renouncing puts you in a relationship with the thing you're renouncing. And so if you renounce Christianity, like I even noticed that a lot of atheism is Christian atheism because of where we live. I don't meet a lot of people who spend a lot of energy renouncing Zeus. Yeah, I think there could be a good case made that we're all Christians in the West. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so just to be mindful of my renunciations are a way of re-ligaturing myself <laughs> to the thing. So I'm, I, I think I'm just more interested in observation, mm. and which is hard to do if, if you are predisposed to judge a thing, because everything you judge has to, you have to render a verdict. And if we're, if we think that the things that we observe in ourselves, our thoughts, our conclusions, our, our convictions, or in others have to, and this is especially bad with Christians, have to be judged, then we're not free to see it anymore, you know, because we have to close the case. I'm more interested in 
observing that I often wake up and think I am an agnostic with a Christian tradition, a Christian vocabulary, yes. a, a core set of convictions that somehow are the writer and somehow are the elephant, man. It just, it's hard for me to tell. Other days I wake up and I have a sense of presence and clarity that is super great, but I've learned not to attach myself to that either because that attachment is sort of a judgment. This is what I want. What's well, going to be torn from my hands in a couple weeks. Mm. And, and so I'm more interested in being a noticer and an observer, uh, which takes way more work. I think this maybe is what Paul was getting at when he said, pray ceaselessly. Mm. Because if he meant it literally the way we think of prayer, then he broke his own rule when he wrote that, you know, because he wasn't praying when he wrote it. I think it's a way of seeing in real time and observing without judgment. Right now, this is what I, I believe that death doesn't have the, the last word. But then the next day, it's like right now I'm scared of bad guys and I wish that somebody would come and shoot them. <laughs> right. And then I say, well, wait, that's not actually, I don't want to actually live that way. Don't judge that. Just observe, you know, yeah. it's way harder to live that way than to just have a set of rules with no ambiguity. now, and I get asked this often because people close to me listen to the show or read mm. my work and... What's that like? Um, <laughs> awkward. It's awkward, but I'm, but I'm glad. You know, I much prefer people, and by the way, anyone listening, I much prefer people come and talk to me about this stuff because I put it out there to have a conversation. You know, if mm. I didn't if I didn't want to put this stuff out there to talk about it, then I would just be putting it in my journal. But mm. but I'm putting all this stuff out there to have conversations with anyone. I really want people to come and talk to me about this stuff. But on the occasions that they do and it's inevitably awkward and that's okay, they ask me, "So what do you believe now?" What is your religion now? Mm. You know, are you in or are you out? Basically. Yeah, sure. And, you know, I always give a very complicated answer where I say, you know, Christianity is an inner guiding myth for me. And whether it's true or not, well, I can't objectively say it's true, but I can say that it has saved my life. Mm. I can say that my experience of it is real. To quote mm -hmm. Dumbledore, just because it's in your head doesn't mean it isn't real. Mm -hmm. And the religion that I am striving for is a religion of the present moment. If you ask me, what is my sacrament? What is the last sacrament left to me? That sacrament is silence and the present moment. 
I'm very Quaker in that way. You know, I discovered the Quakers after my, you know, experience of of institutional religion just completely fell apart. And I found the Quakers incredibly healing. And I'm no longer uh, with the Quakers, but I've retained the sacrament of the present moment and this total radical presence to this single moment. This is all I've got and my experience of it. And this is it. And my religion, the quality of my religion is determined by how fully present I am to that moment. If I'm not present, it's bad religion. That's where I'm at right now. Mm, I love that. The fearful mind cannot be present. Because exactly. It's it's always regretting or anticipating. Yeah. It's always about what's behind and what's ahead. But the burning bush is in your midst. Yes. Martha got it wrong. Mary got it right. Can you experience the Christ, the Spirit? And gosh, different people have called it different, called him different things. And so that's just our English word for it. Can you experience what the, the Christ is doing in your midst right now? Or are you fixated on defending your faith, which means you're, you're, you're you know, stuck on history and always talking about what's going to happen post-mortem? That is so often uh, regulated by mm -hmm. a life of fear. It's protective, it's defensive, and it's ultimately selfish. Yes. The way you're talking about is a vulnerability to the moment, that silence, that unprotected silence. And uh, I think it produces better fruit. Yeah, I agree. And just, you know, to clarify for listeners, you know, who might think I'm making this sound easy, it was a fucking nightmare coming to mm. this point. Like, it was awful. It's hard. And I still have a long ways to go, like we all do. So I'm I'm not saying any of this to make me sound more spiritual or mature. And I'm not saying it to, to make it sound easy at all. It's fucking brutal to do this kind of work and to be honest within our religion and our faith. Being sound is a thing that you agree with. Being healthy is hard. Yes, exactly. So before we wrap up here, what are three books that you've read lately that you'd recommend that have helped you on this journey? Three books that I, let's see. Um, I've got a frustratingly tall stack of books beside my bed my, that my wife keeps telling me to put somewhere else. I've got actually got the lamp on them now. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm often on reading Krista uh, Tippett's Becoming Wise. I've been returning to that. Um, mm. I, I just love her mind. Yes. And, uh, let's see, I'm reading... The Wisdom of the Enneagram right now. I've tried to do a lot of that work in the last couple of years. And that book is like, it's kind of like a workbook. It's been super helpful for me. Awesome. To use, again, that metaphor, understanding the, 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 the writer and the elephant a little bit. Some of those things that are just so ingrained that having some vocabulary for them has been really helpful. Mm. Uh, what else? I'm always reading Vonnegut. I've just got to. Kurt oh, Vonnegut. I've got a Vonnegut crush that I just can't shake. If you told me I got to choose between lunch with him or lunch with Jesus, I would have a real conflict on my hands. <laughs> uh, I wasn't expecting that. That's awesome. Kurt Vonnegut just, is amazing. What's your What's your favorite Vonnegut book? I come back to Cat's Cradle again because okay. of, because of Bokanon, what, uh, yeah. the that, that satirical approach to anyway. So I, I was getting ready to say spoiler alert, but that came out in the '60s. Like if you, <laughs> but, yeah, I just love that book, and um, I, I've got a lot of his short stories. So I, I read a lot of that because, as a storyteller, um, there are just a few people who the economy of words to get things done. As will be very clear to your listeners, I can't say anything shorthand. And so <laughs> men and women like that, they teach me how to I, say I think, more. I think that's a quality of pastors everywhere. 
<laughs> let's just let's just be real. Which is different than you saying, "Oh, I hadn't noticed." <laughs> you, just, <laughs> you just validated my my overtalking, but yeah, it's uh, that's that's one of the things I'm doing. So to answer honestly, yeah, those, that's what I'm reading now. But I read a lot. Awesome. That's great. And I do highly recommend to my listeners Experiments in Honesty. It's a very good book. I'm enjoying it. Steve, where can people find you? Uh, I've got a website, stevedockerty.net. Uh, we'll get you to um, uh, some of the, the events that I have coming up and some of my writing. And Awesome. And you're on Twitter. You can be stalked on Twitter. Where do people stalk you on Twitter? Stepdoc, S-T-E-P-D-0-C. And, uh, and then I'm on Facebook as, uh, yeah, Steve Doherty or author, Steve Doherty, my author page that I don't know how to use. All right. Very good. Well, my minions go hunt him down and stalk him and harass him and ask him hard <laughs> questions. So that is it for this show. Steve, thank you so much for joining me this week. It's been fabulous. It has been. Thank you so much. For those of you who want to support this show, there are many, many ways to do that. A follower on Twitter whose name I can't remember right now, I'm so sorry, wrote a really kind review of this podcast in a blog, and that was great. It was super sweet. I will post a link to that in the show notes. Uh, That's one way to support this show. Write a review, write a response, or you can share it with your friends. You can respond to it in your own show or YouTube channel. Share it on social media. I understand that most of us, we're struggling. We don't have much money. We uh, can't really give financially to many things that we love. And I get that. I'm in the same boat. But one way that you can support it is to just share this with your friends friends. Share the love. This is all about conversation. And so bring people into the dialogue. You can also leave a five-star review on iTunes. That helps enormously. And for those of you who are able to give financially, I am in the process of setting up my Patreon account for the podcast and the blog. You can go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. And you can donate $5 or even $1 and you will get access to a totally separate podcast called the House of Heretics podcast in which Justin and I just ramble. It's unedited and I say a lot of things that should probably be edited. So if you want the unedited version of me, you can donate to my Patreon and get a second podcast every week. The music is by The Jelly Rocks from the album Bang and Whimper. You can find it on Spotify and iTunes. The artwork is by Justin Caleb Bryant. I need to thank my team, Carson Green and Justin Caleb Bryant, for keeping my sanity together as I run this online ship. And we will see you next week.